Uh, my name is Barbara. I'm a compulsive overeater. And I prayed all the way over here. Well, two or three times. I said like my, some of my favorite prayers that I learned from um, one of my favorite sponsors in all the years I've been in OA. I got here in 1975 and um, I was 180- pounds when I arrived at the doorstep of the first church I went to. Church? I'm Jewish. What am I doing in a church? That's what I said. And um, Gene Smith, who was uh, sponsored me for 13 years, taught me a prayer that came out of the Old Testament. And I said that, and I'm going to repeat it. I never had the courage to do this until recently, which is, oh, God, may the words of my mouth and the spirit of my heart be acceptable to you, dear Lord, and my rock and my redeemer. And that, I believe, is from the Old Testament. And the, the, the last thing that we read here in Chapter 5, you know, kind of the ABCs of the program are really what it's all about for me. Um, I couldn't do this by myself. I, I'm very, very fortunate. I feel very fortunate that I, I came here. I had just turned 25 years old. I never thought I would become 62. I'm 62. Um, how did that happen? I never thought I'd be, you know, 17 years old, let alone like 62. Um, <laughs> um, I couldn't stop eating from, really, it started in my teenage years. Um, I, I, the first time I remember having an, a real episode of, of eating out of control was um, at the age of 14 at this, uh, this event for the ninth graders called the A9 Pin Ceremony, and the, the, this auditorium at my junior high was filled with probably about a thousand, more than a thousand people, and there were mountains of brownies at the back of the room, pyramids, beautifully shaped pyramids, <laughs> tables that went from one end of the auditorium to the other, and I was in the front of the room with my mom and um, my dad and my best friend and her parents, who um, even though my father and her father had worked together for many years it was like news to me and she was my best friend that they even knew each other um because my father didn't communicate um whatsoever he really wasn't able to i believe if he was diagnosed today he'd probably be diagnosed as having the asperger's um the symptoms of of that illness um anyway getting back to my story I went back for one brownie, and all I remember of the entire pin ceremony for those two or three hours that we were there was going back and forth, back and forth, having one brownie after another, and looking at the, my pictures at that time when I was, I was 14 years old, I was starting to get a little bit zoftic, and I started thinking um, about a year later, which is like plump, um, <laughs> another word for plump, um, about a year and a half later, the disease really kicked off. And by the time I was 16, I was really off to the races, and I went on my first diet. And at that point, I went from, I think I was about 115 pounds when I, I got into high school to 144 pounds um, on that first diet, which was on January 2nd, 1966. Um, January 2nd, because I had to eat through the holidays. And, you know, I, I still had had that hangover of eating and had more eating to do on January 1st. When I graduated high school, I was 153, and I hit 189 at the age of 19. And I remember sitting in the parking lot at Pierce College. I went to three colleges, starting with Pierce. I never thought I would even get through Pierce College, but I did. And then got a bachelor's and a master's um, a few years after that. But um, I was wearing a leather coat in the dead heat of summer, 
taking summer school classes because I needed to hide from you guys. And I sat binging in the car, crying, knowing that there was no solution for me. There was nowhere for me to go. I had tried everything. Um, here I was, 19 years old, and I couldn't stop eating, and I didn't know of anything called Overeaters Anonymous. I had not heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. I hadn't heard of anything like the 12 Steps. I just felt so despair, so, in so much despair and distress, which is how I lived really every day um, until I found Overeaters Anonymous, and I walked into that first meeting, and at that church and I saw everyone sat in a circle and I hated sitting in a circle because I wanted to hide from you. I didn't want anyone to see me and I, I didn't know that you, you saw right through me. Here I was, this fat girl. Um, and I, I was, our meetings at the time were two hours long. Can you imagine a two-hour meeting? Oh, my God. But, you know, things are a little bit slower. The pace of life is a little slower. You didn't have smartphones. You weren't, like, glued to your technology every second of the day. Um, it was really different then. And at, at the break, I... I was planning to leave because this was one weird place. I mean, people were fat, thin. There were people that came from Kansas City and lived in a cellar that were in that room. I mean, it was like weird. And, and I was so cool. I was not. The way that I looked when I walked in was I was wearing maternity clothes. I, I hated myself. When I walked through a door, if it was a double doors in the back of the room or the front of the room, um, I would hit the side of the door and walking through the door. It was I had a, like all of these these um, methods of self hate that I had employed consciously and unconsciously because I just wanted not to be walking on terra firma. I had such a low self-opinion, and I really believed that if I just lost my weight, everything would be fine. The formula would work. You know, you lose your weight, you get a boyfriend, you're happy. It never worked that way. Everything was on the outside for me. Everything was on the surface. If everything just lined up, if all the stars lined up, if I had the right, everything on the outside of me, whatever my dreams were at the time, which were had nothing to do with the inside. It all had to do with the outside, and that would make me feel okay on the inside, starting with how you spoke to me. You know, like the sixth step I, I interpreted for many years is basically, if you change, I'll be happy. That was the sixth step. <laughs> and I still believe that. <laughs> Just say it differently, treat me differently, be different, and I'll be happy. And that's why I need this program so desperately to have such distorted ideas about life. When I came here, I didn't believe I could lose my weight. So any of you sitting in the room, um, there's hope. <laughs> I really, really believed I couldn't lose my weight. And my first sponsor, who P.S. fired me after two weeks, we had two food plans in those days. And so I was on the orange sheet, and she was on the gray sheet. And after two weeks of listening to me turn in my food, and the, the, the only difference between our food plans, which I learned I couldn't handle in short order after she fired me, um, was that I had a piece of bread with breakfast and one at lunch. And I ate three meals a day and nothing in between. Fruits, vegetable, protein, that was it. It was on the sheet. That's what I ate. And she fired me, and I was, she told me the gift that she gave me was that I could lose my weight. And at that first meeting that I went to, I got that same gift, which brought me back in because I was going to leave at the break. 
That two-hour meeting would, would have been a one-hour meeting. I would have left because I just couldn't figure this place out. And what, it was just so strange. And a woman came up to me, and she said, if you want to lose your weight, you can do it here. And I knew that there was a lot more that needed to be fixed, that we needed, like, a, some kind of universal toolkit, which is what Overeaters Anonymous does. <laughs> it's like a universal, God-given toolkit for me to, to start looking at me and start making changes. And it started with losing weight. I am of the school that believes that if you're eating, you can't work the steps. That's what I believe. That's true for me. And I went to, in the beginning, my first three years in this program, I went to about seven, always seven, but sometimes 12 meetings a week. And why was that? Because this, to me, has always been, and certainly much more so in my first, my, the formative years, my first 12 years of abstinence, um, of this, I had to relearn, and I still do, I have to get rid of my old ideas, and the only way that I can replace them with new ideas is coming to the School of Life, which is here. This is where I learn how to address my thinking. And I learn from all of you, and you your shares and your experiences and your dreams achieved and, and, and your hopes thrashed to the ground. We share it all here with honesty and with, number one, the common denominator of love, which is what has kept me coming back and got me back into that room at my first meeting. The language of love is what is the glue here because I didn't feel lovable at 180 pounds. I felt I had such disdain for myself and such judgment of myself, and I was such a piece of dirt because of my weight. And when I walked into Overeaters Anonymous, they told me, no one walked up to me and said, you're okay, you're all right, you weigh 180 pounds. No, that didn't happen. <laughs> that's, the la that's the message I got, that I was okay, I am okay, I am enough, and that it can happen, whatever it is. It can happen, starting with the weight loss, because the first step is we admitted we were powerless over food and our lives have become unmanageable. And I believe that to take that step, I have to surrender. I have to surrender to something greater than myself. And those are the ABCs we read in, in the, the big book. When we read that every morning or at every meeting, we, always, we almost ever, always hear that at every meeting. And it took a power greater than myself to do it. I didn't get instant abstinence and instant weight loss in the program. I got abstinence for six weeks, and then I broke it because I had a long list of reasons of why I couldn't abstain. And then when that reason left and got on a plane, um, <laughs> she went back to New York and back to Sweden. Um, I started abstaining again, called my sponsor, who very, very sweetly said to me, I thought you were dead. <laughs> <laughs> so no I'm not I'm just fatter than last time I talked to you and more miserable and so I, I got on my back on the abstinence and I changed my abstinence where there was no flour in my abstinence and I abstained for four months I went to meetings every, every day there was one or I went to A meetings or EHA meetings so I was in meeting every day I was giving service at meetings I was calling my sponsor every day I was doing the writing she was directing me to page 66 and 67 in the book the big book almost every day because I was so full of anger and resentment and hatred that I had to read about what resentment did to us. <laughs> I just read that this morning. I'll tell you. I'll tell you why maybe. <laughs> and my answers are in that book. I thought that was the stupidest book for so long except for the 
narrow experience I had with being directed by my sponsor to read very specific pages that applied to my mental state the time at the time I called her, which was resentment, resentment, resentment. <laughs> I can get a PhD in resentment. I've just had I know it really, I know it really well, but I cannot harbor it, nor can I harbor self-pity. And that four months of abstinence ended with a break in my abstinence. And I know, and I found out later, it took a long time after that to discover that the last house on the block, the last stop sign on the street is self-pity. I cannot entertain self-pity because the way it goes is something like this. Ah, I don't like the way this thing's going. You know, this like kind of sucks. Um, I think that person, I don't like what they said. They really hurt my feelings. Uh, God, I'm really starting to feel bad about myself because I believe what they said. That's what I'm thinking to myself. You know, they were critical of me. You know, I didn't do something right. And, you know, this eating thing, I don't know. I think I'm going to start looking at bakery windows. This is what happened before I broke my abstinence the last time. And I was on a dream vacation, I thought. And I was riding a bike through Santa Cruz. And... I started obsessing on cakes. Now, cakes are really hard to transport when you're on a bike, like a big cake, you know, it's really difficult. It's just not a practical thing, you know, like little candy bars, you know, like Twinkies are out. Can you believe, like, Twinkies are dead? There's no more Twinkies. I guess you can, like, store them, keep them in your freezer. I don't know, like, Hostess cupcakes are out of business? I used to, like, support them. So I started... I couldn't stop the self-pity cycle. I didn't know what it was. I couldn't identify it. I went to a meeting, and in those days we had coffee after we went to fellowship after our meetings, and I went to fellowship a few times a week, and I would sit like glued to the person next to me. This woman had two years of abstinence, and I believe that she was lying. Like, two years of abstinence? How's that possible? That's like, like a century. It really felt that way to me because I couldn't, I didn't know how to do this thing. I didn't know how to stop. I hadn't surrendered. And I broke my abstinence. I got on the plane, came home. My car didn't work. I had to borrow a car to go my last binge. My last binge was in a borrowed car. I always went to every, any length, every length to eat. And I've got lots of stories about what I did in the middle of the desert in Israel. To get, I did weird things to eat. I, we probably, I'm probably not alone. Um, I always went to every lens to eat, and that uh, that break of my abstinence, in terms of the quantity, was really minuscule, relative to the kind of binging I did. But it brought me to the such despair that I had to make a decision. It brought me to the turning point, and I, in this car, I said either I take the car over the bridge or I do this thing, and I said this higher power thing, which I didn't really get it yet. I have to turn my will and my life over to this thing, and it scared the hell out of me it scared me to death I didn't know what it was I felt like I jumped off a cliff and I did I jumped off a cliff into the unknown and what I got for it was a lifetime one one minute at a time one day at a time and when I first started abstaining I just had oh god I'm talking about the old days like the very beginning but I guess there's a reason for this is the people that I, I had two roommates which I really didn't like <laughs> I invited them to live with me at a really big place to live. And they, they were um, into making these Sunset Magazine 
Christmas cook December 2nd was my birthday. So, you know, they were like making cookies every day and taking them to work like, you know, Santa Clauses and sleds and, and decorated and, and all this stuff. And every day I had to take these cookies off the kitchen table and from the refrigerator take my piece of fruit and cup of yogurt. So fast forward 37 years. I got married at the age of 57. I have a little bit of an issue with um, intimate relationships. <laughs> it took a while. Can I tell you, like, you know, 30 years of abstinence later, chipping away at my mental blocks and my tremendous fear, tremendous fear, tre tremendous fear, and filling the holes in with, with the love of the program and doing the working the steps and running up and down the steps, up and down, up and down, up and down, working these steps. Here I am celebrating 37 years of back-to-back -back abstinence, three meals a day and nothing in between with the exception of these international flights to Asia. What do you do? <laughs> I figured it out because I've done it a bunch of times. Like, just don't try and figure it out. I'm not a mathematician. But I get to eat moderately now. Who figured? That's really weird. Um, I don't have the obsession. I lost the obsession. That's the biggest miracle. I couldn't stop before. With the obsession, that rapacious creditor, as they, they, they label it in the big book, it was stealing my life. It stole my life from me, and I got it back in Overeaters Anonymous. And I am very active in the program. I still give service. I go to four meetings a week. I sponsor. I have a really wonderful program spiritually and I guess I get to share about that uh, there's so much that's happened over over all these years it's just my life is such a miracle to me and I've, I've felt this way from the very beginning I'm mean, going to a meeting people like applaud it's like what did I say you know I'm a compulsive overeater you guys are like happy about that huh um, I still get a little bit weird when people talk to me about food and I didn't think I did until um, last night because I've just like in my second year of abstinence, I was out to lunch with someone and it was like a takeout place. And I, when I went out to lunch often or when I went to work, I take my little Snoopy's lunch pail and I had my weight and measured things, which tuna and a lot of vegetables. And this person said to me, are you on a diet? And I said, no, this is how I eat, and that was the end of it. Well, last night I went out with my husband and some uh, friends that I didn't choose, or his friends. Uh, <laughs> and someone's wife, there's just four of us, um, started uh, picking my menu choices apart. And she wanted to have flatbread. That's like a category at this restaurant. Flatbread is a category. It's like something you put on the wall, you nail it in. <laughs> what is it? And she goes, oh, you don't eat flatbread? I said, I don't feel like it. And then my husband chimes in, she doesn't eat fat. Well, I do eat. I'm actually a moderate mealer. I eat just about anything. Um, and so I got into like this thing. It was like really, when I, when I think about it, it was like, like a comedy hour. Like... Yes, I do. <laughs> I, 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 wouldn't, I just don't feel like it. And, and then she said, well, why don't you? <laughs> like, it was something like that. And everything, when the, there's a waiter, like, trying to take the order. And she's, like, like poking. I felt like I was being poked. Well, guess what I discovered in my writing this morning, and actually before I did the writing, 
that when there's something, you know, I'm feeling a little upset. There's somebody else. There's actually something wrong with me. God, that is such a... Starts with a P. That's not... Really? I have to look at myself. What's going on? You know, it has to do with me. It all comes back to me. So my husband suggested, after he told me, you know, you were kind of like... He didn't use a rubichi, but kind of testy with her. Like, you were a little bit rude. And I got defensive. And then I realized later, you know, I think I was. Like, jumped on her. Like, flatbread. And, <laughs> and, and it all comes back to me. It comes back to roost right here of what's going on inside of me. Because if I'm really feeling really okay, like well, the night before I went to this event and then... Events, 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 like, uh, I'm tired of, like, banquets and constant stuff, which really, I think, me, I'm doing these kind of things, I can't believe it. My life is, like, really, really off the charts amazing, but I'm, like, tired. So I did my writing this morning, and I, what did I find of, like, my ego, my pride, if I really felt my self-esteem, all these things came into play, and I have to look at it, and then... Ask God to help me correct this thinking that I have and replace it with healthy thoughts, better thoughts that make me feel better and so that I can be standing in front of you and not get, like, offended when somebody starts doing what she did. It's really not a big deal. Like, I've been doing this a long time, you know. Like, she's not the first one that asked me a question about, like, the way I eat. She looks at I've been this thin a long time. Like, she's known me a long time. It's not like I'm on a diet. So I still have it going. Listen to me. Um, (laughs) So I have to look at me. It really comes back to me looking at me and asking God to remove my pride and replace it with humility. It's like, you know, so what? So I was a little weird last night. Like, you know, like, so what? And like to admit to my husband, yeah, I was a little, maybe I was a little bitchy. Do Do I owe an apology? I don't know. Um... I asked him, no, you don't know an apology, but, you know, he's a guy. I don't know. (laughs) He doesn't have a 12-step program. I don't know if I do or not. I don't think so. But it comes back to me looking at me. I think it's time to stop. It's 930. Right? Okay. All right. Thank you. Okay, this is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at the meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Okay, being recorded, please receive the question. Okay. So, any questions? Yes. Hi, Father. Can you talk about your higher power and if there was any difference before and after program? So the question was, can I talk about my higher power and if there was any difference before and after the program? When I came to the program, I was agnostic. I wasn't sure, either agnostic or atheist. I really didn't know. I didn't have a concept of a higher power. I had dabbled in spiritual endeavors for through my teen years and read voraciously um, all different from Buddhism and Taoism uh, and different um, Eastern philosophies. I'm, I'm Jewish, but I didn't. Dabble, dabble there. 
<laughs> um, I didn't really have a concept, so it really started in Overeaters Anonymous. And it started very, I thought, very slowly. Looking back, um, it really wasn't that slow. I remember really being like the Doubting Thomas. Um, I, there was a book called, a little book, it was a Hazleton book, I believe it's Hazleton, called uh, 24 Hours a Day. We didn't have a lot of, we have so, such a plethora of books that have um, been published over the years and someone told me I should pick it up and that I could read a passage for each day in the year and I thought give me a break what would a book know about me on a given day that's ridiculous <laughs> and it was <laughs> so it was sometime in October and I remember I picked up the book and we used to have these really very well stocked literature tables at all of, all of our meetings and I picked up the book and I opened it up to that day and I went, oh, blank, I can't believe, it knows. And so <laughs> I guess I have to buy it. So that's, you know, really baby steps. So I started reading that book. And also um, my first sponsor and every sponsor always talked about God. So like there was no avoiding it. But my, the concept started for me with an, I was willing at my very first meeting, everybody like held hands. Like I said, well, I was a hippie in the 60s and early 70s. Everybody held hands. You know, that was cool. I can hold hands with you people. So I did. And then you said the serenity prayer. And I didn't do that, but I started with the hand-holding business. And then people hugged and said, you know, we used to do that. Well, that's kind of cool. I can hug people. And it's like really slow. You know, we're talking baby steps here. And, and then they started talking about this higher power business. So I said, well, do I have anything to do with the sun coming up today? Now. Nah. What about the tides going in and out of the, the ocean? Did I, me? No. Um, who put the trees in the ground, the, the mountains? On earth? I started looking at like the natural world and I knew it wasn't me who did it. So I said, there must be a, some kind of a higher power. But to say higher power, it was like way too much. So I said HP. And then I graduated a higher power, but um, it's, it's, you know, it started off slow, but it's, um, I've got a pretty good foundation now. My higher power, we're like friends. <laughs> I don't know what it looks like, he looks like, she looks like, but it's a, that's, that was the beginning for me. It's really hard. I've done a lot of traveling, um, a lot of traveling, and it just depends on if I'm, you know, when I was on tours, then like they get you at the crack of dawn and like, oh my God. And I haven't always been willing like to get up like an hour earlier. I just haven't. Um, but I always travel with my 12 and 12 in my big book or, or one or two or three spiritual books. No, I don't. Usually one. It's like too much stuff in the luggage already. You know, the first 164 pages, you know, the little short version without the stories. 
And I might also have a meditation book with me, but I, I have been really, really inconsistent when I travel and with other people. Like, I still haven't gotten over the other people, naming he's my husband. I, that, he's the other people in my life. And, and like, I've always gotten down on my knees, um, always, from sometime in the first year, I heard that that's what people did and it worked. I've been doing it ever since, but I don't want him to see. And I'm sure that he has. I'm like, I live with that guy. <laughs> so, like, he leaves the room, I get on my knees. I mean, it's really kind of embarrassing to admit that. Like, my sponsor said, huh? Here's what you need to do. He needs to catch you. <laughs> and then you need to say, I've been doing this for 37 years. <laughs> Just like, like a little stage, you know, presentation. I'm not there yet. <laughs> it might take 47 years. I don't know. But it's, it's been, but my higher power goes with me. My abstinence goes with me. The first time I went to, the first time I went to Asia and the second time I was like really flipped out over like, where am I? And, you know, five hours of flying, you're in Hawaii, it's three in the morning and like, and they're feeding you all the time. Like, what is this about? So, you know, what I, I, I had, I figured out a way to measure it. Like, okay, eight hours between meals, and then when I land, it's going to be what time? And you have to eat, like, you, know, you don't eat breakfast at dinner time, just because that's breakfast time or dinner time in L.A. I'm, like, in uh, Bangkok, so it's different. It's been really hard for me to adjust to that. But yes, the spiritual program, I, I, I just carry it with me, even if it's just getting in the shower, saying my first three steps, getting on my knees somewhere else other than when someone can watch me. <laughs> I always traveled alone before I got married. So I didn't have to worry about that. And I really don't have to worry about it anymore. I'm just like a little wacky. Terrell. So as an old timer, what is <laughs> oh, my cane. <laughs> Yes. What was the question? I love giving service. The question was, what do I get out of service as an old timer? The same thing I got in the beginning. I I have to be at the meeting, so I have a commitment to go. Um, it makes me feel good when I'm it just. I feel good about myself. I'm making a contribution. So making a, a contribution to me is really important. I have an obligation. I feel to the program because it's given me a life way beyond my wildest dreams. Way beyond my wildest dreams. And that those are the three elements that I you know the most important components of giving service to me. And like we need it. You know, not let some meetings people just don't you gotta keep the doors open. People have to do the job, you know, and I, I volunteer, I, I call newcomers, I call the newcomer I still I do the do. And I get to keep what I have, number one. Number one, I get to keep what I have and I get to stay abstinent. That's the most important thing I get. How do I define my relationship with food? I love food. We have so much fun together. <laughs> food is my friend. I look forward to every meal. If I miss a meal, even if it's like something really funky like it's 10 o'clock in the morning, and I haven't eaten breakfast yet, and lunch is between 12 and 2. I'm still going to eat my breakfast. 
I have uh, my relationship with food. Um, I'll tell you, it's just it's just good. It's changed in terms of what I eat because it's expanded um, quite a bit. Um, but it, it's not like a war. I don't hate food. I, I became friends with food when I made the decision to abstain no matter what. And if I had to eat gray sheet the rest of my life, I'd be happy as a clam. I absolutely had no dream of being a moderate mealer. It was not on the horizon, nothing I ever considered. It wasn't important to me. Um, they said, this is what you eat. Fine, this is what I eat. Because it, it means freedom. Anybody else? Oh, sorry. Um, how do you make amends when to do so directly would harm them or others? So the question is, how do I make amends when to do so directly would harm them? Indirectly, like action, um, taking through action and changing my behavior. Um, I was given an assignment about couple of us, a number of assignments that had to do with making amends to my mother. Um, the last one, a year ago, I was told that I needed to, <clears throat> to make amends to my mother and that I'm trying to think of the different things that I did. The last thing I did was I wrote her a letter of appreciation. For years I've been writing resentment letters, but she never saw. Hate letters, but she never saw. These anger, rageful letters. Um, and that's not really about my mom. It was like really just about me, but I got it from her because that's my mom. It wasn't really directly, but it was indirectly because my mom doesn't have a program. But I just gave her this letter about a month ago that... I couldn't believe it was God. It was written by God, and it was all the things that I was grateful to my mother for. And I gave it to her in a little envelope, and she called me a day later crying. And she said, and I, I cried when I read it, and went, wow, this is, and it was all from my heart. It was all the stuff that I learned from my mom that has made me me. I didn't look at any of the icky stuff. It really isn't important. And she said it was the most beautiful letter that she ever read. And I said, you know, it was the most beautiful letter I ever wrote. <laughs> and it, it, was, it was just such a, a special moment. So that's one way that, that I did it. Um, stealing food, that was another thing I had to make amends for. And I did that directly, though. That was like any, after my first um, inventory. I had to make amends to a grocery store chain. <laughs> I used to eat my way through the store. Okay, I think we have a little more, five more minutes if anybody has any questions. Yeah, in the back. Can you, I'm sorry, can you, uh, you speak a little louder? Yeah, can you talk a little bit about how you got abstinent? How I got abstinent? Well, the abstinence that I had, I talked about it earlier, um, but I broke my abstinence on December 1st, that 37 years ago, and it was so, um, it just crumbled me to the ground, just destroyed me. And I couldn't 
go on one more minute. Um, there's page 25, and I'm going to read this because this is a perfect description of how I felt when I decided to abstain no matter what. I think it's page 20, 25. 25. If you are as seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle-of-the-road solution. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible, and if we had passed into that region from which there is no return for human aid. We had but two alternatives. One was to go to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other was to accept spiritual help. This we did because we honestly wanted to and we were willing to make the effort. That is exactly my experience. I couldn't go on one more minute in my skin. I had to make a decision. And I abstained, I decided to abstain no matter what, no matter what. And stuff happens, but I abstain no matter what. And I will, I will share one more thing. I you know, wrote down, I'm writing my abstinence down now. Now it's an electronic thing. I text it to somebody. And I, I started off with a little notepad around that big, and I wrote down BLD, breakfast, lunch, dinner, you know, the day of the week. And then, because I weighed only once a month when I was losing my um, losing weight, I wrote the weight on that particular day of the month. Then I would weigh one month following, and I carried that with me because my abstinence is like my security blanket. No matter what's going on, I can I hug my abstinence. That's like if nothing else, I've got my abstinence. And there's a whole lot more to work on, like I was saying, but it starts with the abstinence. One more quick question. Yeah, great. Thanks for your share. Gosh, I hope it's quick. Um, you talked about maybe you had some issues with intimacy and, and, and that you married a little later on in life. How, <laughs> a little. <laughs> during that period, and if so, how did you deal with that in program? You know what I mean? How did you? So the question was, how did I deal with loneliness not having a partner? Um, I was really never lonely. First of all, there's always a lot going on in here. <laughs> and there's a meeting every day of the week. Three times I could go to as many meetings as I wanted, but I formed a fellowship around me of, of, of girlfriends, and I really have a Ph.D. in dating. So I've always been busy from 15 to 55, dating, 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 with about eight years of not dating I didn't date very much in my 40s. I just couldn't get that together. I don't know why. Um, but loneliness has really never been very much of an issue, especially for someone that fundamentally, I don't, um, I think I'm, I'm kind of like a sole practitioner in my own life. Like, you know, being alone, um, being in control, I really like being in control. And so inviting people, being single, having my little condo or before like an apartment and, and setting appointments with people to get together, I was, I've always been really good at that. And I could say no, and it wasn't like I came home and I had like my two dogs to take care of, which always wag their tails. They're so nice. They're always happy to see me. And then there's my husband. <laughs> he comes home from work and he's always in a good mood. He's not always jumping up and down when he sees me. He did that when we were dating. He would do incredible things because he was so happy to see me. Now it's like we live together. What's that about? You know, there's some really nice things about dating. Everyone's like, really? Hi! 
<laughs> and they dance. <laughs> It stops when you get married, <laughs> except for special occasions. <laughs> okay, we have to stop now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs>